Welcome to The How of Business with your host, Henry Lopez, the podcast that helps you start, run, and grow your small business. And now, here is your host. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez, and my guest today is Christina Schlegel. Christina, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. We're going to chat about Christina's interesting journey, how she got to where she is today as a business owner and entrepreneur, especially launching Make Bake, which is a CPG baking and food craft brand. So she's going to share her experiences with launching that business and how she got there. To receive more information about the Howa business, including the show notes page for this episode and how you can continue supporting my show and receive exclusive content and discounts through a Patreon membership, just visit thehowabusiness.com. Let me tell you a bit more about Christina. Christina Schlegel is the founder of Make Bake, as I said, is a consumer packaged goods baking and food craft brand. Christina is a creative and creative product and marketing strategist with over 20 plus year track record of creating category defining products and customer experiences that deliver strategic, measurable growth for businesses. She has worked with Williams Sonoma. Pottery Barn Kids, Thumbtack, Baby List, Baby Center, Walgreens, Sephora, Change.org, and Common Sense Media, among others. She left her corporate life in Silicon Valley to attend the new school of cooking and then founded Make Bake in 2019, uh, which again is a, is a baking and food craft brand. And, and specifically, she has a, a patent pending edible sugar sticker system that's created an entirely new product category and is a game changer for busy parents baking at home and professional bakers alike. Make Bake edible vegan food and baking decorations stickers are sold in 150 plus independent real retailers and growing in the U.S. and abroad. Christina lives in the San Francisco Bay Area. So once again, Christina Schlegel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's really nice to be here. And it feels kind of wild to be talking to you today after all these years mm -hmm. of uh, working and getting to a place of entrepreneurship and being able to start my own business. Absolutely. It's inspirational. Your journey is inspirational and, and really a lot that we can relate to. I, I also made the shift from the corporate world into entrepreneurship. And so that's always interesting to me. As I was doing the the research, Christina, I, I think I saw that you you majored in sociology and then graduate studies in public policy. So I'm always curious, what, were, <laughs> what was the goal back then? What were you working towards? What did you want to be when you grew up back then? I think candidly, like from 18 to 23, I just wanted to be like a good daughter who did well in school. Mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> um, you know, I'm, um, I'm on my mother's side. I'm a first generation American. My mother and her family are from Greece. And so really, I grew up in this community that had a very strong work ethic and a really valued education. And so there was a lot of kind of rhetoric around, you know, becoming things that people understood to be familiar, like mm. doctors and lawyers and, and professors. And so when I was in college, that's kind of the choice that I made. Um, but I was also a very creative child. Like, as far as I can remember, I was always, you know, coming up with some kind of project and taking art classes, but that really wasn't an acceptable um, career path, as they say back then. Mm -hmm. um, and I say this with the utmost love for my family. But, you know, as I started getting through university and then grad school, it was right around the time that the internet was really coming into existence. And I was really intrigued by it. And just through happenstance, happened to work in grad school at a nonprofit that was also a tech company. And I instantly fell in love. I just was like, this is everything that I find fascinating. It's mm -hmm. new, it's unstructured, it's it's kind of unmapped. And what I found completely unbeknownst to me was that my skills that I'd sort of acquired, you know, in graduate school in terms of being analytical and hypothesis driven, as well as my qualitative skills in being a social, excuse me, in being a sociology major. Uh, learning how to interview people and kind of take a qualitative approach to understanding all kind of came together in this very unexpected way. And so I sort of just fell into my career in tech and very ended up really loving it for a really long time and ended up in this career path that people um, who are kind of outside the industry may not be as familiar with, but it's called user experience strategy and design and sort of your job to kind of figure out 
you know, what, what do people need? What, what problems are they trying to solve and how do we create products and experiences that really help them, you know, solve those problems in successful, compelling, easy to use ways. And it was, you know, probably 15 years that I, I did that work before I ended up taking a sabbatical after my daughter was born and going to culinary school. I had always wanted to learn how to bake, was kind of at a point where I was, you know, candidly a little burnt out and needed a change of pace. And I love the idea of doing something with my hands because here I'd been, you know, designing mostly software and tech for the better part of, you know, more than a decade. And I just fell in love with it and, you know, had fantasies of like opening a patisserie and then kind of realized that was fanciful. Um, but enjoyed school and then kind of actually went back to consulting. And it wasn't until my daughter was a little bit older and I really wanted to start baking with her that I was really looking for products in the category that we now make and just wasn't finding the things that I really wanted to use or or that my daughter would find engaging. And I guess because I had this product background, I just like my brain just kind of flipped on and I was immediately drawn into it and, and just started researching like, well, who are the players? Like, what products are they making? You know, uh, what technology are they using? And and just kind of found myself uh, in front of this problem space where I thought, you know, there's an opportunity for us to do something a little bit different here. And so it was kind of this weird mix of, you know, years of one career that developed skills that unbeknownst to me, again, became totally transferable in something else. And all of it came together around something I felt really passionate about. And that was really the first time in my career I actually really thought about actually taking the leap into entrepreneurship. It's something that I was kind of drawn to in different ways earlier in my career, but really didn't have that perfect moment of things that I found interesting enough to take the leap because I, I did know it would be, you know, a big shift and a, and a big commitment. But so you, that's how I got you here. Did, you did have some thoughts before this of maybe doing your own thing. Is Am I following correctly? Yeah, I did. You know, I think, you know, it's inherent, I think, in working in Silicon Valley where there's so much entrepreneurship sure, around sure, you yeah. that you sort of start to ask yourself, well, could I do this? Would I want to do this? And, you know, there were a few times um, I'm actually married to a software engineer. And so we're sort of like this little product team at home. <laughs> there were a few times where we sort of worked on app ideas that we had, but um, nothing that I could really see like a, a large platform for. And so, it, you know, I just knew that there were things about entrepreneurship that I found interesting, but I had seen it from the inside from other people's businesses and I knew how hard it was. And so it was going to take something that I felt really excited about um, and thought would not just be interesting, but would challenge me in ways that I would enjoy for me to really take that leap. But it took yeah. quite so a bit I'm, of time. <laughs> yeah, There's no doubt that, that that insider perspective, especially from the Silicon Valley perspective, uh, you were not delusional. You didn't have a romanticized view of it. You realized how, how hard it can be um, and how you have to have a little luck on your side as well. Um, but going back, I'm also the son of, of immigrant parents, often similar experience where our parents, I'm generalizing here, but they want us, they want us to focus on the education because that's how they see us getting ahead. Uh, but we're, but they're also entrepreneurial out of necessity. So were there entrepreneurial influences in your family? Yes, actually there there were. So I I spoke at the top of um you know my mother being an immigrant first generation. Um my father is American. He was raised in a working class military family and he himself was very entrepreneurial. He uh, worked in real estate, was a developer and an engineer and so my mom was sort of like the steady, she was an electrical engineer, worked at a utility, steady job, you know, 40 years, all that. And then my dad was the one out taking risks. And so, you know, he had different motivations. He wanted to kind of, you know, extend where he came from and grow into bigger opportunities. And so I think the the entrepreneurial spirit that I get is definitely having grown up around someone who was always taking chances and he talked about it a lot at home. You know, mm -hmm. he talked about why this was a good risk, why this one wasn't, and and was just so excited about what he was doing that, you know, at the time at an, as a nine-year-old girl, like I really wasn't interested in like the cap rate of commercial real estate. <laughs> but something of that clearly weird, clearly like osmosis kicked in or whatever, and some of it came down. <laughs> yeah. No, no doubt. How did they, how did they react when you decided to shift into starting your own business? Um, you know, they were very supportive. You know, I think also because, you know, for me, it was a little bit later in life. I had already done a lot of things that 
had demonstrated that I could make good decisions and was successful. And so at this point in my life, you know, I think my parents were excited to see me finally take that chance, you know, and really have been supportive of me this entire time, not just emotionally, but, you know, my mom is like an, you know, an amazing grandmother. Like she shows up whenever I need her to help, you know, we have two young children. And and so, you know, doing this with young children is like that, that other layer of complexity. Of course, of course. Um, and so you know, I'm so grateful for their support and for my husband as well. Like everyone has, everyone is on team make bake, as I say. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So I feel very privileged to, to have the resources that I need to, to kind of take this chance and mm-hmm. to take the time. And um, I don't know if I'd mentioned this previously in our chats, but, you know, we worked on this product for a year and a half, launched, and then the pandemic hit like 12 weeks, 10 or 12 oh, weeks wow. later. So, you know, it, it hasn't been the easiest journey. The, the first year and a half were really difficult uh, once we were in market because it just coincided with this world event that was, right. you know, really hard for a new business to 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 be structured in. Yeah. 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 We'll dive more into that, but yeah, I can only imagine that that was uh, so, so that has to come back to then you have to have really believed that this was the big idea that this had potential. What was your, because obviously me having a background in software as well, we tend to be very analytical. And so I gotta think you went about this thinking, this is the criteria that I'm looking at that leads me to feel that this idea is the, the big idea. What what were some of those things that you took into consideration to decide, yes, I'm going to move forward with this? You know, that's a great question. And I actually w- would love to take a step back and, and kind of answer a, another question first that you didn't ask, which was, what did I want out of a business? So for me, once I had this idea of wanting to work in this space, before I even started looking at like what would be the big idea that we could bring to market that would really be, you know, interesting, I actually took a step back, having worked in so many business and asked myself, before I do this, before I invest my time, I give up working, you know, our money, this, you know, we've we've bootstrapped the business to this point. Um, I want to be clear about what I want. And so I actually did like a whole design research project. <laughs> you know, on myself and trying to determine what kind of a business did I want to build, whether it was like the type of product, the type of constraints, you know, what was going to be demanded of me. Um, And really, if there's one thing that I've learned on my journey that I've really kept with me is that sometimes as business owners, um, we we, we don't really start by thinking about how are we going to design this business to meet our needs as well. And, And that was something I just did, I think, because of my training. I was just kind of raised professionally to think that way. Right. But it, it's oh, something and you I, also I, with your UI experience, like I think you always think about things of how, how it impacts the user, don't you? Yes. And I am the user as the business owner. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, so I thought a lot about that. And so that led me to, okay, I think there's an opportunity in this category. I know I want to make something that is, you know, not food service, right? I want it to be CPG. I want it to be mm-hmm. something that can be not handmade. You know, I had all these ideas of like, okay, where, what is the bucket we're going to fit into that would allow me to create the kind of business I'd, I'd like to to create. And once I did that, I really just started unpacking the problem. So, you know, as I mentioned, this really started because I, my daughter at the time was, I think like three and I wanted her to bake with me. And, you know, she loved the idea, but she just, you know, couldn't do that much. And so I started to look at, you know, what could I do to make this easier for her or more accessible? And that sort of just led me down this path of looking at the products in the category. Well, once you have a problem, it's like you suddenly start to see everybody around you who has the same problem. So now I'm like going to birthday parties and play dates. And, and because I'm a baker now I'm, you know, I'm bringing things with me and, you know, moms are saying, oh, I, I wish I could do that for my daughter, or I wish I could bake with my kids. And the researcher in me immediately is like, well, why don't you, you know? And so you know, going down this like impromptu qualitative interview, I realized that this was a, a common thread that baking is something that really connects people. And it's something that actually a lot of people are not comfortable with because maybe they didn't grow up around it, or they feel like it's too scientific or technical. And so I just started unpacking the problem basically and saying, okay, what would make this easier? You know, what's currently out there? Uh, What tools are people creating? What food products? And as I kind of started to go through the list, I really stumbled into this category of food manufacturing called edible images. And once I saw that that food technology kind of existed and what it was, I did a really deep dive 
And that's when I saw what I thought would be like a big opportunity to introduce something new to the market. Um, and, and that was largely because, you know, what was out there was, was just so, um, it was kind of old technology, candidly, you know, food, uh, edible images have been around for like, I don't know, 40 or 50 years at this mm -hmm. point. And the way that they are used in the marketplace is kind of, um, you know, kind of like a commodity, kind of what what you might say is like a down market skew. Like it's it's inexpensive. You know, you you probably know it as like a kid's superhero image on a cake from right. a grocery or store. You take the picture in, and the the bakery will will put it on there. Right, like your parents' wedding picture for their 40th anniversary. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, being this person with a design background and, you know, I just started to pattern match. And I and I thought, you know, there's this huge movement in different categories. You have companies like Tatley who have really elevated the um, temporary tattoo market. You have companies like Chasing Paper that innovated on the, you know, wall, you know, stickable wallpaper market. And a lot of what they're doing is bringing design and a quality of aesthetic to a new platform. And I just saw this edible image technology and I just thought no one's looking at this. So I just went all in and I just started speaking with manufacturers, asking tons of questions, you know, why does this look the way it does? Why does it taste the way it does? You cut it as a circle. Could I, could I get a kiss cut like a sticker? And just really started, you know, having no assumptions, right? Like going in with that user experience brain of like, let's assume nothing mm -hmm. and, and saw that, the limitations of edible images that I was currently seeing in the market were not a limitation of technology. They were just candidly more a limitation of imagination. And so that's when I thought, wow, if I can turn this into something that is easy to use, that is, you know, tastes better and that aesthetically is aligned with all the other things I know, you know, mothers and parents in my demographic are buying and, and, and investing in, in terms of like, elegant pajamas and like beautiful paperware for their birthday parties. Like this could be something that, that really, you know, solves a lot of problems and, and, and creates like a new platform for this expression. And, and that's when I really start to get excited about what I thought this could be. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. So let me ask you this. You, you, you've been at this since 2019, as you already touched on, you had to, to fight through the pandemic and the impact on the business there you're you're still growing so there's still a lot of work i'm sure that you put into this business <laughs> what what does it do for you now what does being now a business owner after that career that you had what is it that it provides you oh my gosh um you know i've actually been thinking about this recently quite a bit um because we're really about to transition into some some new things next year but so much more than I ever thought it would, candidly. I know that sounds very like, you know, wide-eyed, but the professional journey that I've been on, that I've put myself on really as a, as a result of doing this has just led me to places that I just didn't know I would be going. Um, I think back to my career and and I was kind of like a subject matter expert by the time I started Make Bake. You know, I'd been doing UX design research, product strategy for years. And, um, you know, when you do something a long time and you develop an expertise, it's, it's low friction, right? Like you just mm -hmm. kind of, you know what, you know what the problems are, you know how to frame things and starting make bake put me back to being a novice again, because when you start a business and especially in a category you've never been in, there's so much you don't know. And then now I'm a small business owner. So I'm doing, you know, everything I never had to touch when I worked at, you know, venture back startups or, you know, large agencies, <laughs> And so the resilience that I feel like I have developed in in sort of my own sense of self, my patience, my my willingness to get up every day and do something, spend time doing something that I know I'm going to be bad at and and still be able to feel good about the progress I'm making, like that growth for me, I feel like no matter what happens with Make Bake, I, I, I cannot look back on the time so far and say that it has not been well spent. Yeah. The resilience and resourcefulness, I got to think, have gone hand in hand there. And then, as you mentioned, this was something that initially, and I think still to a big extent, you're able to enjoy it still with your children to some extent, yeah? I do. And, you know, I I talked about my dad and how he used to come home all the time and talk about what he was doing. And I realized, like, I was, I'm doing that with my daughter. She's now mm -hmm. nine. Yeah. And my son is three and a half. 
And I, I just, I, I feel so grateful to be able to expose them to my experience. And, you know, there are ways that we get to connect. Like she's in my, you know, my daughter is like the person who uses these. So she right. always looks at the artwork that we create and tells me her favorites. And, um, you know, that's really fun for me, but, you know, she also gets to see what I'm doing. And especially cause we started from home, the journey that I'm on and the struggles and, and then also how I think about solving problems and to be able to expose her to that is just like, it, it feels like such a gift. Yeah. You're, you're modeling such, such great things for her. So just to describe it a little bit farther, I think, uh, I think everybody's following along, but as you call them stickies, the stickers you can eat and uh, give me a little bit more about how people use this. The way I'm envisioning is instead of me having a hand pipe or do some other kind of thing that I have to do by hand. And again, uh, if you're not an artist or you don't think you're good at that, that, that would make you not want to do it. These are different images, stickers that I can arrange to create a decoration. Am, am I getting it correctly? Yeah, absolutely. So um, yes, we call them stickies, the stickers you can eat. And when you open the pack up, they look just like a real sticker sheet, like to the point that kids sometimes are like, wait a minute, can, <laughs> I can eat these, you yeah. know, like they look to their parent for that, like assurance, <laughs> like, this is okay, right? right. Um, so the, the sticker sheet looks just like a regular sticker set of sticker sheets, and it works like it, you peel them off. And they are designed both so that you as a parent can really decorate something lovely if you don't have those great skills, but they're also designed and formulated to be handled by kids. Right. So a lot of our customers buy them um, to bake with their kids, that to make stuff not just for an event, but to say like, hey, let's bake our holiday cookies together, or your cousins are coming over, let's all do cupcakes. And so it brings in the arts and crafts kind of feeling that people have when they do things with their kids that are you know, paint or sticker or drawing base mm -hmm. into the food world. And I think, um, you know, brings in the sense of creativity, you know, like one of the things that I was talking about in terms of innovation is most edible images historically were just like one big rectangle you slapped on a cake, right? right. There's not a lot of creativity in that. No. But if I give you like this set of like three sticker sheets and you want to build like a holiday village around the side of your cake, you know, whether you're the mom who's expressing yourself creatively or you're the kid who's participating, there's kind of more creative ownership over that. And um, again, with my UX brain on, those are the kinds of like small details in product configuration that can really open up its use. It, it goes from just being something you slap on to something that you have creative ownership over, really changes how people feel about interacting with the product and wanting to use it again and again. Yeah, it's brilliant. I, I get all of that. So, okay, a couple of rapid fire questions. You, It took you a year and a half, if I got it right, from idea kind of being significant to launching. Is that right? Yeah, more or less. Yeah, yeah. About, about a year and a half from the time I realized that this was the technology I wanted mm -hmm. to work on and getting through the product development process. Right. Correct. And then the funding of that initial launch, all bootstrap, all, all funded by you or did you get any lending? How did you fund the startup? Um, so we originally funded it, you know, my husband and I funded ourselves with a little bit of, you know, family assistance um, to help us kind of get through that first year and um, really have continued to finance it primarily that way up until now. We did, um, you know, I was I was able to leverage some kind of more modern types of loans through Shopify, where as we had peak selling seasons, able to leverage that into some some liquidity to give us cash flow to buy to to produce more inventory. Got it. Um, but that is that has been our method up until okay. now. Um, and and so. You mentioned early on, I'm curious now as to the prototyping, the development of it. One of the things that's always a challenge with, with anything that we develop is we tend to put it out there to people who love us, our friends, our family, and they tell us what they think we want to hear. You have experience in this area, though. So how did you get that real feedback that was valuable to you as you were developing this? Um, that's a great question. And it's very true. I think, I think, it's um it's an approach a lot of people take because that's kind of what they know. Well, you know, let me show my family and my friends right. and they love you and they're, they're going to support you. And they may not tell you like all the truths. As I yeah, like and to you say. might say, would you pay $50? Yes, of course I would pay $50. Yeah, of course I would. yeah sure. That's, I love you. That's great. Yeah. Um, but um, because of my background, I, you know, I did have this research background. I, I knew better. And, and actually I also didn't want to share it with a lot of people I knew because I knew a lot of them weren't all necessarily in my demographic and I didn't want to 
kind of cloud my own judgment with feedback from people who were not my customer as much as they might care about me. So at the time, you know, again, being self-funded, I looked to the the avenues that I had to be able to do this. Like I, you know, I wasn't going to pay $10,000 for a focus group. Right. Um, so I actually went to social media and I started um, finding, you know, influencers in the categories that we were in, you know, offered them the product. They were really intrigued because it was something they'd never seen before. You know, they would share it. I would see who would comment on it and be engaged. I'd try and reach those customers, uh, give away freebies, like really basically just try and organically get the product into as many people's hands as I thought I could, who would be my core customer and really sit back and watch, you know, how were they using it? How were they talking about it? You know, what questions were people asking in social media when they saw the post about how the product worked? And so it was really able to leverage this tool that we think of as like a, almost as, as, as brands, we think of as like a marketing communication tool, I really leveraged it as like a research tool. Um, I also use paid advertising to kind of A-B test uh, messages and packaging fronts and and figure out, okay, you know, I, again, you don't have these bigger budgets, but the tools I have at my disposal can, you know, directionally start to give me some feedback. And, And that's in the early days, how I really shaped feedback from, um, you know, from our customers. And it did actually lead me, lead me to some insights that I, that I didn't previously have. And and by that, what I mean is uh, now, you know, kids play with these things all the time. You're going to laugh when I tell you this because it sounds so obvious. But at the, when I first designed these, I imagined that like only the mom would be the user. That that case of like, oh, I got to make these. I want to make these cute cupcakes for my kids, you know, class Valentine's Day party. Right. Well, it turns now out it seems be- so obvious that we were describing it. Of course, it would be the kids who are, love to play with stickers. It enables them and encourages them. So I can see it. You can see it now, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it turns out if you have edible stickers in your house, your kids are going to want to get their hands on <laughs> They're going to want to play with them. Yeah. Um, and that is an insight I could have missed if I hadn't really mm. spent a lot of time in this exploratory phase. And I to see. be candid, that overlapped with the pandemic. Part of the reason mm. I did a lot of that was because even though in the beginning we got a lot of great interest from specialty retailers and wholesale, you know, the pandemic hit, they all shut down. And, you know, I was either going to try and figure out how to compete during the pandemic or say to myself, you know, we're still really new. Let's just focus on product market fit. And I could have missed that insight because when we launched, the messaging was decorate in seconds, you know, no Pinterest fails. It was really around that success message for moms. Whereas now what our customers love about us is that we're an interactive product. So we are crafty bakes the whole family can make, you know, is the direction we're going. And honestly, had it not been for the pandemic, I might have missed that, or I might have taken me a lot more time and money to 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 really see that. And that actually led to us reformulating to changing a little bit of the taste and texture of the product so that it was easier for kids to handle. We didn't design it to be eaten off the sticker sheet. It's meant to be off a cupcake. Okay. But again, if kids have these, they're going to stick them in their mouths. Sure, so course, we yeah. changed the flavor profile. And those were all kind of like really organic things that we learned with real feedback from our customers at a time where like, I couldn't really be pushing sales because everyone was closed. Yeah. But you were selling online back then, correct or not? We were selling online and, you know, several people said to me, oh, you know, everyone's home baking. This product is perfect. And while that might've felt correct at the time, I was a new brand, which means I didn't have any brand awareness. I didn't have a built in. Yeah, I didn't have a built-in audience and everyone had pivoted to selling D2C on Instagram and it was a lot of noise. And I was also a mother with two young kids and again, in the very fortunate position of being able to slow walk it, but rather than bang my head up against a wall for you know a year, I I just decided to switch back to, to research mode and say, okay, we got out 12 weeks out of the gate. People were super excited, but that's a small sample. Let's figure out what do we need to refine? And so I spent that time working on the branding, the packaging, the messaging, all through, you know, we were selling for sure, but just, you know, not aggressively. And and so I just had to, you know, use that time in a way that was going to work for me rather than, you know, stressing about how many units I was selling on my website, you know, alongside a million other people selling stuff. Right. Now, from because of the nature of this product, from day one, somebody else was making this for you? Correct. So I had to find a manufacturer who could even make what we wanted to make. And that was a whole, like that could be like its whole own conversation (laughs) about, about supply chains and sourcing manufacturers, but also trying to find manufacturers who 
who kind of have this capability, but need to make it in a different way for us. And so it's food, right? So it needs to be in an inspected, regulated facility. Like those are, it's a very expensive process to set up. So I knew that we were not going to make that investment until I was really sure about whether we had something um, that would have been way too big of a capital investment for us to do blindly. And you still obviously, you have a co-packer now, or is it domestic, I'm assuming? Yes, correct. These are, they're made in the United States. Um, they're made in a facility that is food allergy friendly. It's free of all of the top allergens except for soy. Um, they're kosher certified. And, you know, that partner has allowed us to get to this point. You know, unfortunately, as is often the case when a manufacturer is doing something that is outside their normal flow, you know, we we have some, you know, we have some struggles with them and some limitations. And, sure. you know, we're actually preparing now to transition next year into really bringing manufacturing in-house and and standing up our own facility because we have some really wonderful opportunities ahead of us, but, you know, we really can't take advantage of them if we can't control our supply chain. But that's that's a huge investment. There's no way we would have made that three years ago. <laughs> whole, whole different level. This is Henry Lopez, briefly pausing this episode to invite you to schedule a free coaching consultation with me. I welcome the opportunity to chat with you about your business plans and offer the guidance and accountability that we all need to achieve success. As an experienced small business owner myself, I understand the challenges you're experiencing, and often it's about helping you ask the right questions to help you make progress towards achieving your goals. Whether it's getting started with your first business or growing and maybe exiting your existing small business, I can help you get there. To find out more about my business coaching services and to schedule your free coaching consultation, please visit thehowofbusiness.com. Take that next step today towards finally realizing your business ownership dreams. I look forward to speaking with you soon. So are you profitable at this point? So this year we are very close to break even, but with the business we're booking for next year, not factoring in how do you stand up a facility in terms of like sales and everything else next year would have been the first year that we would have been profitable. Now, of course that math is going to change because we are going to make some, you know, capital investments in having to stand up the facility, Sure, but it's been, it's been really crazy to see just like how quickly, um, you know, we get into some of these small stores and like, they kind of just are a hit with their customers. And so we're seeing really good reorder velocity. But the thing that's been really exciting is the the inbound requests we're getting from national retailers. And that's, yeah, you know, you're yeah. asking. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I just want to interrupt you there because what I'm curious about is uh, it's relatively easier. I'm not saying it's easy, easier once you've developed that momentum where now it's a pool. But how did you initially get into your first retailers, Christina? Just as we could share that at a high level, what, what did it yeah. take to get in there? Well, it, it, you know, it's, 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 um, again, my strategy overlaps a little bit with the pandemic. Yeah. Um, but for me in the early days, it was cold email outreach. I would okay. find specialty retailers that I thought would be a really great pitch. And uh, did you sorry, target really great... independence or as opposed to large chains regionally? How did, how did you kind of decide where to start? That's a great question. Um, so again, trying to be strategic, I decided that I was going to focus only on independent specialty retailers. And that was for two reasons. One, we just weren't equipped to do business with large retailers. I know everyone who has a business has a fantasy on being on the stores of like, you know, Target and, or Walmart or whomever. But th- that those are challenging relationships. You Absolutely. really have to be able operationally and financially to stand up there. And I knew that would be, you know, not a smart decision. Um, I also knew that in addition to building a brand and a product, because we created something that is fairly unique, I'm now also in the business of building a product category. So I knew that there was a lot of education and stuff that we were going to have to do for consumers to buy our product. And in specialty retailers and those like really wonderful shops that line, you know, every main street in America, those retailers are very high touch. They're, they're customer um, service uh, professionals and the owners, they know their customers, they know the products. And I knew that if we were in a high touch retail environment, 
that we would get some of that benefit of that customer education and also the feedback. And so yeah. it was a combination of those things that said, you know, that made me think, okay, we need to focus on specialty first. So I looked for retailers that I thought were like a great fit for us in terms of aesthetic, what they carried. I really wasn't interested at sales volume at that point of what they were doing. I just wanted a place where like when we put our product in there, it would feel like a really good fit. And so that's what we did. So we are in like so many different kinds of shops. Like we're in mercantile, party, gift. Uh, we're, you know, in the Carnegie Museum gift shop, you know, like all kinds of random places that as a category, they all look really different. But if you look at their assortments and what they carry in their stores, they carry lovable, experiential, high design brands. And so mm -hmm. that's really what I was looking at. And so I was able to, again, leverage my skills from my Silicon Valley days in understanding a bit about email marketing into crafting email, um, cold email outreach. And so I would email store owners and pitch them my business and then follow up. <laughs> and that's what I did for the first yeah. couple of years until the pandemic passed. And then we went to trade shows. And that this last summer was the first time we went to trade shows. I see. And that's a whole different avenue of, of business mm -hmm. development. So the follow-up, you 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 say very uh, passively there, but I got to think that's where the money was, right? Because it's one thing to send an email. Hopefully that introduces you. And now when you call, you have something to reference, but you have to have had the, the courage and the discipline to make those calls, I have to think. Yeah, it's um it is definitely daunting. Cold, cold sales is is not for the faint of heart. No. <laughs> and I learned that when it comes to cold sales, I am the faint of heart. Like that's been <laughs> actually <laughs> um that's actually been one of the most difficult aspects of the business for me is I am not um I'm not a salesperson by nature. I think that people who do well at sales are, you know, have a particular set of skills and personality and they are extraordinary at it. And that's not me. And so that has been a place that's been very uncomfortable for me to be putting myself and my brand out there constantly. Um, but but you've overcome is. that. So how have you done that? Oh, gosh. I don't know. <laughs> Wine? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> After the fact. After the fact, right? Um, no, you just, um, you have to start to separate yourself from it, right? Like, Nothing is personal. You have to remind yourself. And it's so hard when it's your business and your your idea, but you have to remind yourself, okay, this is in some ways a numbers game, right? Like how many people am I going to reach? How many of those are going to convert into wholesale customers? And how many of them are going to keep reordering? And so when you look at it that way, you can really kind of contain your emotional effort and just see it as like, you know, lines and not dots, as they say, right? Like not look at every instance as a success or failure, but just look at the trends over time. And I think when you pull the lens out, you can say, okay, is this worth my time or is it working? And if it's not working, you know, why is it? Is it that I'm not targeting stores that were the right fit. Is it that our price point is too high for their local area? Is it, you know, that they don't carry food products, you know, whatever it is. And so if you can really take yourself out of it and just look at it as like another business problem and another framing, then you can start to proactively like look at solutions and say, okay, well, I'm going to change my pitch this way, or I'm going to try targeting this segment of store owners. And it, it really just separates you from it. And once I started to see it that way, I felt a little less distressed about um, all the cold conversations I was having. Yeah, no, that's well said, brilliant. I, I think that that's what it takes is you have to separate yourself from it. But to your point, because it's our creation and it's an expression of us, it's hard not to take it personally. It's very hard. <laughs> And, you know, I think for me, because I did have some D2C business and I had customers that I was interacting with directly and seeing what they were sharing and what they were writing about our product and emails I was getting, I had that to kind of hold me up a little bit, you know, to know like there are people out there who love this product. Um, if there's a store owner that says no, that might be for another reason. And one of the things I did actually discover through this process is Early on, I think I was getting the no's that I was getting were, you know, different reasons. But one of the things I didn't realize until I went to trade shows, and this is a great example of like, sometimes you can only learn things in person when people are willing to kind of chit chat with you. Um, but what I learned at trade shows 
was one of the most common questions I was getting from buyers was just, okay, how do tell me how I sell this? How do I sell this? You know, like, where does this go in my shop? How do I merchandise mm-hmm. it? What do I, what do I tell people it's for? And I realized that that was like a big component of our wholesale marketing that was missing I kind see. of showing shop owners. Cause here I thought very naively, I've created this product. I know people who've used it, loved it. No one's ever seen anything like it. It's, you know, people are going to be so happy to have something unique in their shop. Well, it turns out that a lot of um, specialty retailers, like they want to sell what they know sells, right? Like people are into candles, you know? So there's like tons of excellent purveyors of candles. And, And so I thought, well, I'm not competing with a bunch of other brands. Like we're the, yes, you can decorate with other things, but like this intellectual property is really owned by us right now. Mm -hmm. But I didn't realize that by not having that competitive set, just people didn't know, like, will people buy these and how do I sell them? And so they gravitate towards other product categories that are like really tried and true. And so that was um, going back to building a category. I was focused on building that category with the consumer, but I didn't realize how I also really had to help shape it and frame it for our wholesale buyers as well. Right. You needed you needed to help them figure out how what am I going to do with this? How do I how yeah. does it benefit me? How do I move this? Um, and that was a big shift. And that's often the case, I think, for a lot of small business owners in a similar situation. We focus on the features of our product and the benefit to the end consumer, but not to that retailer. And how how do we help them make money from this? You know, trade shows are very expensive, but they are not only great sales vehicles, like in terms of going and and driving, you know, mm-hmm. new retailers and writing writing show orders. But I, again, maybe because I have this inherent bias towards you know research. Right. I found that what I learned in our first trade show season, which was this summer, was just a couple of shows was just like, you know, years worth of data yeah, almost like just like I couldn't have Googled my way to these insights. <laughs> right. Like, right. And so to me, even if we, you know, and we did well, we definitely like sold a bunch, um, got a bunch of interests from, you know, other people and really paid off in growing our, our retailer account. But to me, what I, what I got out of this summer was also just like so much more context and information that we're now working on implementing for next year. If I was going to say to someone who's, you know, I know there are lots of businesses, but if someone is doing a CPG product business, you know, we did some of the larger trade shows because of where we are in our business cycle, but there are so many, um, local, local shows, you know, craft markets, um, holiday markets, you know, all these markets that people go to ready to shop. They're not just a place to, to drive awareness of your business. They're just excellent cost-effective customer research. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. You've gotten your money's worth and you went into it with that, with that mindset as well as to that being another benefit that you were going to get from it. All right. Let me ask you this final question. We'll start to wrap it up. I'm sure that you get approached a lot of times now, uh, something along the lines of Christina, I have a great idea for a product. How do I do it? What do I do next? So what's the advice you typically give people generally as to where to get started if they think they really do have an idea for a product? That's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I think, I think it's going to be different for everyone, but again, not to keep coming back to the same thread, but I always, I always tell people, and I realize this is what's worked for me is I start with research and I don't just mean like going on the internet. I mean, you know, going to trade shows. Like I was, you know, visiting trade shows as a buyer, talking to manufacturers, talking to producers. I was going to trade shows, talking to other retailers. I was interviewing moms. I was connecting on social media. You know, you think you have this great idea and there's probably a lot of truth to that, but getting that from an idea to something that's made to something that people will actually buy, that it requires so much feedback during that process. And I think that's where sometimes people kind of get off track is that they're so focused on getting this thing that they believe is the right configuration to get made and getting it sold and getting it to shelves that there's not an iterative loop that's happening there. And again, because of my software training where it's always like, you know, test, you know, release, test, learn, release, you know, over test, learn over and over again. Um, I was constantly iterating. I was shifting messaging, shifting packaging, changing the layout of the stickers themselves, and just trying to get as many people to touch and feel and talk to me about my product as I could. 
Um, and I think if you're going to make something, trying to do that as much as early as possible with as low fidelity investment as you can is how you can really start to shape for yourself what it is that you're making before you make those bigger investments. And I will say with all of that, the critical lens is knowing how to filter that feedback. So the feedback is really important, but also really having confidence in your idea and knowing how to sift through the trends and the insights versus the one-off comments or the perspectives from people who either aren't your target customer or like don't understand the economics of your business. Like for example, people are constantly telling me you should do personalized stuff. You should do like people's birthday parties. And mm. I'm like, no, it's not a good yeah. business for us. Doesn't scale, do right? Yeah. Do, do people want it? Absolutely. They want it, but it's not a good business for us to be in. Right. Right. For you. you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, no, well, well said. And I think that that research, the, what I see Christina is that that requires work requires dedication and it goes back to what you shared at the beginning of this conversation, which is your why was strong enough that it that it motivated you and kept you on it through that those times. Because it, we want to get to the shiny object soon, but you got to put in the time and the effort to do the research. Is what I'm hearing. Yeah, definitely. And I and I think, you know, I think also for me, like I actually started the very beginnings of what this was long before I stopped working. <laughs> You know, so 2019 is when like we officially, you know, started the product development process. But for a year and a half before then, I, you know, my wheels were already turning and I was um, able to make some space in my life. And it, it wasn't very much. It was, you know, I have, I have kids. It was a, you know, a few hours a week to start to pick away at the problem. And I really tried to be disciplined about framing the assignment for myself the way I would for one of my clients, you know. Um, it's just that my timelines were longer and I was able to do that without having to like give up my job or give up, you know, other things until I was certain that this was something that we needed to move forward in. And then of course I had to like dedicate more time to it. So I think when you're, when you want to do something entrepreneurial, there's so many ways to start that journey and it doesn't always have to be jumping into the deep end with both feet. Agreed. Well said. All right. Uh, so we've been talking about make bake and in particular, the stickies, the stickers that you can eat. Uh, I believe you have a, a special right now that uh, you want to share with our listeners. Yes. Um, if you visit us at letsmakebake.com, you can shop our entire collection and uh, you can get a free pack of stickers with your first order. And the code for that is free pack, F-R-E-E-P-A-C-K. Excellent. We'll have a link to that as well on the show notes page. And so you can go to the howabusiness.com and you'll find the link and that code there. So take a, take advantage of that and shop online. These, these great products book recommendation. I'm always looking for one. Is there a book that comes to mind that you would recommend? Yes. Um, recently I read dream first details later by Ellen Marie Bennett. She is this incredibly dynamic, uh, Latinx female entrepreneur. She's the founder of Headley and Bennett, which is an apron company. And her energy is like so inspiring. And her, you know, her real mantra is, you know, you, sometimes you got to just dive in and then figure out how you're going to deliver later. Sure. <laughs> and everyone has their own risk tolerance, but I just really found her book to be really inspiring and with just like wonderful energy. And I think when you're an entrepreneur, the early days are very lonely. You're kind of in your own little bubble and right. finding community, whether that's through people you follow online or books you read or communities that you're a part of, entrepreneurial communities, just can really help you on your journey, not just learning, but just like realizing emotionally that the journey that you're on is is really to be expected. The highs, the lows, the complexities, and lots of other people have those same experiences, even people you see as wildly successful. Yeah, well said. And, you know, going back to the point you had made about filtering the input, that's another area where you had experience with that. But if we don't, we, we can get help to help us with that, right? Definitely. There's a lot of great programs and books and, and mentors. I think sometimes, um, you know, and I even saw this in my in my professional career, when we were, um, you know, doing workshops with, you know, SVPs or whoever of these big of large companies and larger brands, um, you know, making making good design is often the result of being willing to make also hard choices. And so, learning really how to filter your decision making, I think, is a really important business skill that can serve you both as a business owner, but in your in your professional career, um, learning how to separate those things out is is going to help you make the right choices for your business right then, especially when you're 
especially like when you're bootstrapping or you have limited resources, you know, you have to make hard choices. You can't do everything. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. All right. Let's wrap it up. What's, what's one thing, Christina, you want us to take away from this conversation that we've had, you know, trying to learn from your experiences with launching Make Bake. What's one thing you want us to take away? I would just encourage people to talk more to other people when you're building your business, whether that's fellow entrepreneurs, whether that's your customers, your manufacturers, so much of the insights I've gotten that have helped me clarify my thinking, make better choices and benefit my business have, have come from the time that I've invested in connecting with other people, listening to my customers, advice from fellow entrepreneurs, you know, insights from, you know, finance professionals, you know, whatever it is, those conversations are so valuable and taking the time to have them. And then also giving yourself the space to really synthesize them to kind of step away. You know, I try and take Friday afternoons off from work early and go, you know, walk outside when it's not cold or do something where I can just like, let my brain meander and try and synthesize the week's work and, and making space and time for that versus always running after your punch list of things that have to get done, I think is a really good long-term investment in yourself and in your business. Yeah. Well said uh, on this topic of, of, you know, sharing with others. Sometimes I think we have a tendency, and I mean, in your case, this is a patented uh, technology, but we have a tendency early on to want to keep it secret, lest somebody steals our idea. What, what are your thoughts on that? Um, well, first, let me correct you. We're patent pending. So we're patent still going pending. through the patent process. I'm wildly optimistic that we will get one, but, but this is a great question. Cause let's say we don't, um, I think a lot of people think that their ideas are very precious. And again, having grown up in a career space where we're cranking out new ideas constantly, <laughs> you know, new innovations constantly trying to do something for the first time, you know, over and over again, you come to realize that the ideas might feel special, but really it's the execution. So protecting your idea sounds like something that isn't like a natural reaction, but let's just the last hour talking about all the things that I've done in the last five years, you know, it takes a lot of work to get here. And so, you know, for me personally, like, I just know that like, you can tell a lot of people your idea, like they're not going to go do it. They don't have the the knowledge, the resource, the perspective, the willingness, like the, these are all the things that really enable success. Does it have to be a good idea with a good product? Yeah, but it, it is really often about execution and your ability to execute intelligently and strategically. And the more people you talk to, the more doors it opens and the more insights you get. And if you can keep filtering that, like you're just going to grow faster. And I don't just even mean sales, but just like your understanding of what you're trying to do. So yeah. don't be afraid to share because you're the one doing the hard work. <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more. That's that's I, I'm sure there are exceptions when somebody might've come up with something that really needs to be protected first, but by and large, we need our ideas to breathe. And I, I, I agree with you completely. Yeah. Right, like well, don't give away your formula. Exactly. But... <laughs> <laughs> But the, but the idea needs to be shared. Um, and uh, yeah, for all these reasons that you've shared. So thanks for sharing that. Uh, where do you want us to go again online to learn more and to uh, take advantage of that special offer? Yeah. So you can shop us at letsmakebake.com and you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Let's Make Bake. Wonderful. Christina, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for being so open and transparent and inspirational. Thanks for taking the time to be with me today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. This is Henry Lopez, and thanks for joining us for this episode of The How of Business. My guest today, again, was Christina Schlegel. And uh, I release episodes every Monday morning. You can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at my website, thehowofbusiness.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to The How of Business. For more information about our coaching programs, online courses, show notes pages, links, and other resources, please visit thehowofbusiness.com.